Welcome to episode 28 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Uh, this week's guest is uh, Joshua Cripps. Um, he is a phenomenal guy, awesome sense of humor, and a great storyteller, and obviously a fantastic landscape photographer. Um, we had so much fun talking, in fact, that uh, we recorded enough content to uh, split this up into two different episodes. So episode 29 will be uh, part two of this podcast um, hope you guys enjoy both version, uh, both podcasts. Um, so, uh, just a reminder, um, I have started up a Patreon page, uh, links in the uh, liner notes, and uh, it's a great way for, for listeners to support the podcast. Um, I want to try to keep this thing ad-free, um, so it's just your my way of having you help me uh, keep the podcast going. I also uh, love to hear from fans um, and listeners, so feel free to reach out to me on social media, uh, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, don't forget to uh, listen to part two of the podcast in episode 29. Thanks. Awesome to have you on the podcast, uh, Joshua Cripps. Is it Joshua or Josh, or do you care? Yeah, it is not do you care. It's uh, Joshua or Josh. Oh, that's a choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> typically, I go uh, by Joshua for professional purposes, but everybody okay. just calls me Josh. Okay. But nobody well, has might... ever called me Yua, which is kind of disappointing. <laughs> okay. Well, I probably won't either, but uh, we could maybe try that out. Yeah, try so. <laughs> so I have to say at the start of the podcast, um, before I started, um, before we started tonight, I went on your website and, you know, like I do with everyone, I kind of take a look at your biography and about page just to, you know, make sure I have a good feel for who I'm talking to. Um, and I have to say that you have the most hilarious, um, about page that I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> it's the best. Thank you. Uh, I, well, you know, I have to admit, I was inspired a little bit by Ron Coscarosa because oh, nice. Okay. You know, yeah, I used to have a a very standard biography page, and then I went on his website uh, once, just once though, Ron. If you're listening to this, I've only been there <laughs> one time, and uh, and he talks about how he's an unprofessional nature photographer, and I, I don't know. Have you ever had a chance to meet Ron? Yeah, I've met Ron twice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's kind of a silly guy, he likes to take the piss out of things. And <laughs> that kind of got me thinking about um, just the, the bios that people write. And so I started paying attention every time I would go to somebody's photographer about me page. And it seemed like they all started off the exact same way, right? Uh -huh. So-and-so is an award-winning photographer who uh, does XYZ and, you know, as trained lions and jumped across school buses <laughs> on hot wheel and you know and so it's just like okay i mean i am never going to be the most extraordinary photographer who ever lived you know so right rather than trying to kind of inflate my own accomplishments i thought i'm just going to go turn the knob you know turn the knob to 11 and um and try to make it as over the top as i possibly could 
I I think mission accomplished, man. <laughs> uh, I even got a laugh out of my wife, um, which isn't which isn't always the easiest thing to do when it comes to photography. But um, let me just I just want to read one of the things on here because I just it made me laugh so hard. Right. So if you don't mind, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, so, go for it. <laughs> um, Currently, Josh spends over 700 days every year in the field seeking out the finest landscapes on earth. He has a mighty beard and sings in a rich baritone, hiking at least 45 miles to capture every photo. Josh ensures that every image he crafts represents the very heart of the wilderness. While you were reading this, Joshua Cripps just did 93 push-ups, won more awards, and became internationally re-renowned. Dude, you have a best sense of humor. It's awesome. Uh, thanks. Sometimes it gets me into a little bit of trouble. Um, I actually had a guy recently send me um, an email, totally unsolicited, and he just said something like, I enjoy your photography, but your biography is completely <laughs> immature and unprofessional, and you should Aww. definitely change it. I'm like, oh, man. I mean, I you I'll have like it. the the professional version right below it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's you, funny, man. You... Oh, thanks. I'm, I mean, I, I think it's funny too, but um, I don't know. I, I could be wrong. Well, and you so. don't have a shortage of sponsorships, so they must think it's kind of funny too. So, <laughs> Well, so far anyway. nobody has ever, you know, like nobody has ever said, you better straighten up and fly right, Crips, or we're going to stop sending you... <laughs> you know, free trial versions of our software. Right, 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 right. Like, I think they probably appreciate that you have a sense of humor. Like, because we're all humans and like, not everyone's super serious, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, to be honest with you, so um, a lot of those brands that show up there on the website, it's mostly just, you know, at one point, that company has reached out to me to say, hey, do you want to demo our equipment or our software or something like that. So it's not like an ongoing sponsorship, but one thing that I have learned is if a, if a company, a brand is seeking any kind of uh, a, an ambassador or a, you know, a pro team member, they're trying to access your audience. Right. And the, so they want you to be you because being you is what draws your audience to you. And so I think as soon as you, stop being yourself and trying to please everybody else based on what you think is going to go over the best. That's when you get this sense of inauthenticity that, uh, that drives a brands away. I, you stole the words right out of my mouth. Right out of my mouth. I was going to say like people appreciate authenticity, um, especially when it comes to the internet, like, cause it's, Nowadays, it's hard to tell like who the people are behind the lens or behind a behind a photograph or, or if like did they? I mean, I, I can't remember which podcast it was, but I was talking to someone about um, Alex Noriega, like he edited someone's photo for them like in a Skype lesson, and they won like landscape photographer of the year. Like that's right. That's crazy to me. Like yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And there are, there are other examples of that too, of, of people who have gone on workshops with certain famous workshop leaders and basically processed the photo 
in the workshop or had the workshop leader process it. And those photos have won awards as well. And so you have the handholding from start to finish uh, of a, you know, you see the influence of this one photographer behind the work of all these other photos from other photographers that go on to win these awards. And you, oh, and (laughs) in this particular instance that I'm thinking of, the, the photographer who won the, one of the judges of the contest was the guy was the workshop leader who did the composing <laughs> and the processing. I'm like, oh, that looks really good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it's terrible. Oh man, yeah. if people only knew so, how incestuous this industry was. Um, <laughs> wow. What, what I think is funny too is you have that, and then you have. I know everybody comes on and talks about Instagram. Uh, but, uh, you know, the whole reason that Instagram influencers started blowing up is this whole idea of authenticity and that you were, you know, creating a relatable brand that your followers could access and could feel like they could actually interact with you. And then all the brands got on board and said, oh, man, we want to start putting our products out to your audience through you as the conduit. And. In, you know, in an attempt to harness that authenticity. And I think as a result, now you have these photographers who are 100% inauthentic because you have no idea what they personally stand for. I was talking about this with a friend the other day, and I won't name any names, but there's an account that I follow, um, quite a large account. And um, this woman has built up a very successful career of traveling around the world into these very exotic and luxurious and elegant locations and has pictures of herself in these wonderful hotel rooms and pools and beaches and all this kind of stuff. Right. And almost every single post is, you know, here I am this week brought to you by this swimsuit company or brought to you by this hotel chain or brought to you by this sunglasses company. And I realized, you know, I've been following this woman for a year and a half probably, and I literally have no idea who she is as a person because all I see are all these uh, sponsored activities that she goes on. I never see her own thoughts about things. I never see her own ideas. or it's, So it's a very strange world that is being created right now. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's definitely something that I've been thinking a lot lately. I mean, I spend probably more time than I should, but I spend a decent amount of time on Instagram, just kind of scrolling through and looking at like various stuff. And, and the question I am consistently asking myself is, wow, why, how come this person has so many followers? Like a lot of times it's not even a, there's nothing that differentiates that person from someone who has 5,000 followers other than the fact that they have a hundred thousand followers. And it's, I'm always just fascinated by the, the, the behind the scenes of what causes that phenomena to happen. And I think if people realized how just down and dirty and gross it really is, it would just turn everyone off to the platform altogether. I think what I think (laughs) is super fascinating is you mentioned that there's nothing that separates that person from any other photographer who, in terms of, I am assuming you mean in terms of talent or image quality or things yeah, like totally. that. Well, what I think is really interesting is the some of the most popular accounts are completely indistinguishable 
from each other. And in <laughs> fact, I think that's the secret to their success is you have some of these very famous travel photographers and you literally could not tell if you lined up 10 of their different photos in a row, who shot photo one versus who fought shot, you know, shot photo two, three, four, five, all the way up. Right. And I think that is, is very telling that the key to Instagram success or one of the keys to Instagram success is conforming to a set of standards that are already approved as popular. Yeah. And it completely shuts down the artistic process of individual expression and and now is rewarding this very unusual kind of photographic conformity or artistic conformity. And maybe it's not that unusual. I mean, if you look at pop music, if you look at popular movies, you look at anything that's popular, they all tend to follow the kind of same formulas. And I think now that more people are getting into the outdoors, more people are getting into outdoors culture and photography, that that mainstreamism, that same effect is starting to take hold in our industry as well. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I mean, you definitely, I feel like 2013, 2014, I saw a lot of that on 500 PX, you know, like everyone's photos kind of trended the same style in terms of processing and like everyone, I mean, there's plenty of people that have been on my podcast that did this, but it's like, it looks best on black and everything was really dark and moody and that's right. You know, best on black. I forgot about that. Yeah, it looks best on black, man. Like just like, you know, your walls are painted black, right? Like um that's what I was always thought in my mind. Like my walls aren't painted black, so why would this look good in my house? Like if if it looks best on black, I don't understand. Right. Anyway, and I have I definitely have a luminous like a backlit print as well. Yeah, yeah. Or studio lighting. Yeah, you definitely could not just throw it in a standard frame with like glaring glass. Like, I don't, is there a photo in that frame? Like, I don't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of trends happening that, and a lot of copycat stuff happening. But one of the things that, that you had uh, said in, in your email to me that, um, and I think this, this might be related, but I was super curious to uh to get a feel for what you wanted to talk about here was the quote-unquote imposter syndrome what did you mean by that what does that mean okay perfect uh so when you uh when we were originally trying to set up the the podcast in late october and i was kind of stressed out and i couldn't make it uh, it was because i was just about to take off uh, on a cross-country trip to well originally I mean, initially to Indiana for some family stuff and then on to New York uh, for this big photography conference, which is called the Photo Plus Expo. Okay. And and this is just a direct shout out to all the landscape photographers listening right now. You guys all need to start coming to Photo Plus Expo because we're a minority there among all the portrait photographers and street photographers and all the other people who are doing photography. But this is a huge industry event. And if you want to have a chance to meet with brand reps and other cool photographers doing cool stuff, uh, this is the place to do it. So um, we never see any landscape photographers. It's basically like me and Aaron Bobnick <laughs> who show up. Right. And then <laughs> and all the people we're always wondering. 90% of the people are listening are like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to take off from work to do that. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I totally get it, man. But um, I started attending in 2014 and it has 100% helped my career oh, I to, I mean, I couldn't even... 
I can't even overstate how much it's helped my career because you just, for let me actually, so I'll get back to your question in just a second, but I'll give you a, an example. Okay. So, uh, this was last year and Aaron, Aaron and I typically share an Airbnb for the event. And so she arrived, I arrived, we're just chit chatting, catching up. And she told me she had just listened to this podcast about people who basically their entire photography income comes from speaking engagements. They get invited to go to all these different conferences and, uh, you know, meetups and all this stuff. And she said, yeah, this pod, this, uh, this episode of the podcast was so fascinating because they interviewed the organizer of this one conference in Chicago. And he was talking about how he started the conference and where it is now and, and how much they kind of pay their speakers and how they uh, attract their audience and things like that. And then um, we, we looked it up. We looked the guy up. His name was Chris Smith. And the <laughs> next day we we're walking around the, the conference floor because it's like a big expo. So you have all these companies showing their latest equipment and um, everybody just kind of mills around and you run into people. And so we're just walking around and I, I ran into a friend of mine and you wear a big old name badge, right? And so he was chatting with a couple of guys who I didn't know. And so you just, you scope their name badges to see who they are, where they're come from. And one of the guys that my friend was talking to was this dude, Chris Smith. Okay. And I, you know, just caught, I was taken aback for a quick second. And then I, I said, oh, wait, you're the guy who runs this photography conference, right? Um, I literally, we were just listening to your uh, interview on this podcast last night. And it was really fascinating. And so we just started chit-chatting with this guy. And by the end of that conference, this guy, Chris Smith, had invited Aaron to speak and lecture and teach at a conference called Out of Acadia, which is a landscape photography conference this past October. And then within about two weeks, he'd reached out to me to ask me to speak at Out of Chicago, which is the original conference that he started. So I spoke there this past summer. And at that conference, he asked if I wanted to, to teach at... Uh, landscape photography conference they're doing in Moab next October. And so literally just by randomly walking around and talking to people, both Aaron and I have come away with speaking engagements and uh, paid speaking engagements and opportunities to teach and further our own brand and reach new audience people, you know, new, our new audiences who like the way that we teach, who could become future workshop clientele and so on. So that's the kind of event that it is. Um, and it's like I said, it's really hard to overstate how, um, how important it can be, how cool it can be to, to just, you know, that old saying of it's not what you know, it's who, oh, you know, sure. and that's really, really true. And this is a, it's a great place to meet all the, uh, very important people in the industry. So anyway, no, I think that's um, awesome. I mean, uh, I've, Maybe they need to have a someone who does landscape podcasts. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never know, man. You should just show up and find out. No, it's funny. I have a like a super tiny um, affiliate relationship with B and H, and out of the blue, my B and H affiliate guy reached out to me last year, and he was like, "Hey, I'm gonna," or actually this year, he's like, "I'm gonna be in your tiny town of Durango." for some reason, do you want to get together and have lunch? And I was like, uh, sure. And it was funny. Like ever since then, he he emails me like, so are you going to be at this, uh, like this conference and this expo and that? And I'm like, 
no dude I, i'm at work <laughs> like <laughs> i have a i have a full-time <laughs> job bro like i can't just travel the country to go to but if i didn't and i was depending on photography as my income for sure like networking is like so critical in almost any industry i feel like it's it's critical you know the um i'll give you another example is um photo pills yeah you know probably most photographers these days know photo pills and and like the app even if they don't know all of the capabilities of yeah, it yeah i was an early adopter man as a night photographer like i use it nice. a lot yeah yeah exactly all the night photographer guys freaking love it yeah. And so anyway, um, since I've been teaching workshops, at one point, Raphael from the PhotoPills team, uh, he reached out to me and just said, um, you know, we can, we can offer you a couple of free downloads of PhotoPills for your workshop students. Nice. So if you're using the app during the workshop and showing people how it works, we'll, we'll give you a couple of uh, free downloads to get people excited about it. So, I mean, we've been doing that for a couple of years. And uh, just kind of built up, like you said, a slow but sure, uh, it went from a professional relationship to more of a personal relationship. And then just this past summer, he kind of went on this world tour uh, to help set up meetups and get people excited about the app and show them how to use it to make better photos. And he was coming through the US and he said, hey, can we put together some kind of a, a seminar about it? So we put together a a one-day photo pill seminar out here in uh, California this past July. And it was awesome. We had about 75 people show up, got all everybody excited about the app. And then at the end of that, he said, hey, we're, um, you know, we're doing this photo pills camp in Menorca in Spain next year. And it's a week long or five days long or something. Do you want to come to that and speak and be in Menorca for a week? I'm like, yes, of course <laughs> I do. It's a no-brainer. You know, but that that kind of thing would never happen if I hadn't been receptive to the idea of just starting a dialogue with this guy four years right. ago. You know, so that's it's just a it's a slow process, but um, it's a really powerful one, and um, you got to start at some point if you want to get that momentum. Yeah, going. absolutely. I mean, I I was like uh, six years ago. I right when I got into photography. Um, I have, uh, I started a mountaineering website for here in Colorado, like where I document all my mountain climbs and stuff like that. Um, but I kind of, at that point, m more of my focus was becoming more and more on landscape photography in Colorado. And, uh, so I decided I wanted to, um, write a blog post where I featured, um, my favorite, uh, landscape photographers in Colorado and just, like, hey, these are the people that I think are the best. And in in mm -hmm. writing that article, which if you Google like top Colorado landscape photographers or whatever, like my website's like the first hit. And it has been since 2012 or whatever. Um, just because um, it's keyworded and all that meta SEO bullshit. But um, what was cool about that, and it was totally unintentional, but it kind of taught me the same lesson that you're talking about, was that in order to write that article, I had to reach out to all of those photographers and say, Hey, I want to feature you on, on my, on this website. I'm writing an article. Can you, can I use your photos on my article? And like, you know, most of the people are like, yeah, totally. That's cool. Awesome. And ever since then, like, uh, three or four of those guys, I've had really good relationships with, like, I've gone out shooting with them. Like I've learned from them. 
Um, they were, you know, they were much, much, much better photographers than me. And I've learned so much from them just so, yeah, sometimes all it takes is just reaching out and showing your interest in somebody and, and just being persistent and, and networking. And it can really pay off if you want to gain something about it, you know, and in my case, I was, they, it was a no brainer for them because now like all of that top website traffic goes into their websites. So. But yeah, networking is super important, yeah. dude. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's really critical. Um so all right, let's uh let's circle yeah. back. Um and cuz the whole reason this brought was brought up was um the timing of your email was right before I was getting ready to leave on okay. this trip. And so I was I was thinking a lot about the conference because uh I had the good fortune to be invited to speak this year uh for Nikon and uh they they sent out the invite and of course you know you get that invite and you say yes and then a few months later they send out the list of presenters you know and and it's me and guys like Joe McNally <laughs> and, <laughs> and you just and you're thinking what am i what am i doing on this stage <laughs> i mean you got to be kidding me it's freaking Joe McNally and a bunch of Nikon ambassadors and um, Corey Rich and Lucas Gilman and Dixie Dixon and, you know, Deanne Fitzmaurice and all these people who are Pulitzer Prize winning photographers and crazy run these huge campaigns for Patagonia and GoPro and stuff. And I'm like, well, I like to take landscape <laughs> photos. I guess I could talk about that, <laughs> you know, and like, so, so that's the, that's kind of the imposter syndrome I talk about where, uh, you ne- like I just you never start to feel like you belong where yeah. you're at, and and it's really fascinating because um, in fact the uh, the guy I just mentioned Corey Rich he put something out a couple years ago on Facebook where he talked about you know because as from where I'm standing when I look at a guy like Corey Rich I think man he's got it all figured out you know he he's been a full time photographer for I don't know how long. And now he has a company, Novus Select, I think it's called, with uh, something like five or seven full-time employees. Um, they're based out of Salt, uh, South Lake Tahoe. And they you know they do these huge shoots around the world. And he'll have these Instagram behind-the-scenes posts of, oh, here I go off uh, on a sh- shoot. And they've got literally something like 60 Pelican cases oh full of God. gear that – you know, that they're trying to wheel through airports and get on planes and stuff. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are paying thousands of dollars in excess baggage fees to shoot for these huge major clients. And I'm just like podunk crips over <laughs> here. You know, I work out of my home office and like, I got to kick my cats off the keyboard because they're <laughs> annoying me. And then he put out something a couple of years ago where he said that he looks at the next tier of photographers, you know, the Nat Geo photographers or the guys like um, Corey Richards or Jimmy Chin or doing Everest expeditions. And he's, and he just feels like, what am I doing in the same room as these guys? I mean, these are really the dudes are, and I thought it was really, really fascinating and a, um, a really good lesson to kind of keep, uh, keep perspective. Cause I know you've talked to some of your other guests about looking at other people's work and comparison and things like that. 
And it's so easy to, you know, your entire life, right? You know, all the good stuff you do, but you also know the bad stuff. And, you know, unless you're a narcissist, you feel balanced. Most people I think probably feel like their bad traits, you know, kind of maybe balance out some of their good traits, but all you see of other people, especially online or especially at a conference is the best of other people. You know, and so you walk into, say, like this, the Photo Plus, uh, the Nikon booth of Photo Plus, and you see all of the, they, they they print a bunch of photos for the booth. I mean, these huge, beautiful 48-inch, 96-inch wide prints, and they put them up all over the booth. And you're just looking at these flawless pictures thinking, oh, my <laughs> God, man, I could never do this stuff. And I think it just comes because you know how many loser shots you took before you finally got that one keeper and uh it's just i think it's a really fascinating to think well wait a second if the guys that i'm looking up to also feel this way maybe i don't have to feel quite so uh intimidated or quite so lost um if it's funny how that works you know that saying misery loves company well i think everything loves company confusion loves company you know you're comforted knowing that other people don't necessarily know what they're doing and they're just figuring it out day by day, just like you are. Yeah, no, so, like uh, I realized, I don't know, like maybe two or three years into my photography journey that the, the worst, the worst thing that I kept doing to myself over and over again was comparing myself to other people. And, and, I, and, you know, it's, it's, it's only human. I feel like, like, cause you want some basis of comparison so that you can kind of, I don't know, like grow as a person. Like it's not a, it's, it's a good thing and that you're trying to become better, but at the same time, it's, it does horrible, horrible things to you as a person. I mean, I think that trait is what drives people to leave negative comments on other people's photos or like to talk shit about other people that, you know, they're probably pretty good photographers and you might have a disagreement about something they did post-processing wise or, whatever but like at the end of the day you're just both photographers out there trying to take photos and enjoy nature most of the time and it's and it it just leads to like it's almost like yoda like like fear leads to hatred and you know like all that stuff it's i you know like (laughs) (laughs) because i feel like if you can just let go of comparing yourself to other people and it's funny we just started the conversation off about looking at instagram and how come they have more likes than me like uh well you know they figured out something that you didn't figure out and and in some cases maybe they have way better photos than you do and that's okay you know like um it's funny how we are we're always trying to compare ourselves though and i i think it's a it's a dangerous path to, to to walk down as an artist because at the end of the day, there's always going to be someone better than you. There's always going to be people that don't like your work, no matter how good you are. So it, it's just a pointless act. It's a pointless waste of energy in terms of where you go as an artist, I feel like. And the more I, I'm, that's part of why I wanted to do the podcast. Like, you know, I, I recognize that I'm never going to be like one of the biggest names in landscape photography be based on my 
photography because you know i don't do it full time so so like how can i contribute to the conversation and how can i contribute to 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 this some this thing that i really 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 love and so you know it's i'm not comparing myself to other podcasters either like i don't even listen to other podcasts for the most part so which is probably good (laughs) (laughs) take that every other podcast out there take that no it's i just i just i listen to a lot of non-photography podcasts but um no you're right though yeah um when i when i think about all the people i've met just through the podcast and all the people that i've met through different articles i've written and stuff like that um and then i look at their body of work if you start to compare yourself that way you're gonna feel like an imposter real fast and i feel like that can happen to anyone to your point like this Corey rich guy like he feels the same way we do and at the end of the day we're we're all just people we put our pants on one leg at a time um and you know like wait you put your pants on uh, one leg at a time most of the time you don't do the do you don't do the jump uh, entry? I haven't I haven't mastered that one yet, so I guess you're maybe a step above. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, don't don't compare your yourself to me because uh, my pants putting on technique is oh, it's pretty legit. I mean, I'm sure. So I mean, I'm not trying to brag, but if I had a pants putting on Instagram, it would have a million Dude, followers I would love it minimum. If your Instagram story tomorrow was just you putting your pants on. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, InstaFam? Pants on. Jay Krizzle here. Showing Two you how to put pants tag. on. Mmm. <laughs> pants <laughs> AF. All right. So um, I feel like that's a pretty sweet segue to maybe talking about. Um, pants uh do you have a do you have a pants photography story like something that crazy that happened in the fields because you did say you wanted you did say you had (laughs) tons of crazy stories that you wanted to share so i was like man i don't know if we have enough time to do all the crazy stories but i at least want to hear one crazy story yeah well the one that always comes to mind really fast uh or like the first one that comes to mind and i'll try to tell it quickly because it's kind of a long story but um it's a good one i think is um, it was last year in uh, New Zealand and it, it's not specifically pants related, but I was wearing pants. So I think we can, we can use that as a shoehorn to get this in here. Um, so what happened was uh, it was one of these situations where, okay, you know, you're a mountaineer. So, you know, when you go into the mountains, there's sort of maybe three, three spheres of things that can really screw you up. One is being, uh, say, overconfident. One is not having the right equipment or being unprepared. And one is uh, the weather, right? And, you know, a lot of times you can kind of, you can squeak by. Like if nothing bad happens in either of those spheres, like say you didn't bring enough equipment, but you have a beautiful sunny day. Okay, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Um, but when those failures start to cascade and overlap, then bad things can happen really, really fast. And, um, and this is kind of a story where that exactly happened. And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so I was traveling with my friend, Jessica, and, uh, this was right at the very end of, uh, I think six weeks in New Zealand. 
And man, the weather was just turned into crap. It was right. It's kind of the transition from fall to winter. And it was just day after day of these howling winds and pounding rains and snow in the mountains. And so we're kind of sticking around down near the coast, but both of us are mountain people. And so we really wanted to have a chance to go for one last mountain hike before I had to fly back to California. And uh, we saw this little break in the weather. It was only supposed to be about a day, but that was good enough for us to say, yeah, let's, let's try it. And so we drove to this place called Mount Cook National Park. Uh, and that's where, okay, yep. have you been there? Have you been to New Zealand? No, I, I wish. I've just seen lots of photos from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really stunning, man. And if you're a mountaineer, it's, uh, it's top notch just because they have so many huts everywhere. It's the access is really cool. Um, yeah. and so we got to Mount Cook and we're, we're looking around for different hikes to do. And, you know, I'd done pretty much all the day trips you can imagine, plus a couple of overnighters in that park without, with the exception of their really remote huts. And so, but one of the trips I'd never done was to a place called Mueller Hut, which is a very popular overnight trip, but because of the shitty weather, um, it, nobody was doing it. Uh, but we looked at weather forecasts and said, Hey, we got this 24 hour break and like, let's go for it. And, uh, so we, uh, it's, it's not even that long or hard of a hike. You have to climb about 2000 feet, takes maybe two and a half hours to get up to the hut. And, um, so we thought, Oh, just cruise up and stay overnight, come back down the next day. And when we started out, it was raining pretty steadily and we thought, all right, well, there's supposed to be a break, there's supposed to be a break. So we kept climbing, we kept climbing and, um, oh, and I, I forgot to mention one other critical thing that helped us make this decision to actually go on this hike, even though the weather wasn't that great when we started out was the fact that the freezing level overnight was supposed to be, uh, I forget exactly. It was something like a thousand feet above the hut. And, uh, and so we thought, well, okay, even if the weather doesn't break and we're just hiking in the rain the whole time, at least it's not going to be snowy and icy, whatever. And so we didn't bring any crampons. We didn't bring ice axe, anything like that. Right. And so we're hiking up, hiking up and like maybe halfway up the snow or the rain starts to turn to snow, but it's not sticking. And so we look each other, you want to keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. And we get up another you know, three quarters of the way to the top. And now the ground is covered with snow and we're looking at each other going, yeah, maybe we should turn around. Maybe we should head back to the cars because we didn't really prepare for snow travel. And, um, right at that same time, a guy was coming down from the hut who had day hiked it. And we asked him, you know, how are the conditions? And he said, yeah, it's snowy up there, but it's really wet snow. It's really warm. It's a mixture of, of slush, rain, snow, um, the conditions are good. The traction's fine. There's, there's not really any issues getting there. So we're like, all right, let's, let's keep going. So the way that the hike works is, uh, you climb about two hours up the face of this ridge and then you gain the ridge and you have to go about 20 more minutes to the hut. And so when we got to the top of the ridge, it had just been raining on us the whole time. And even though we were wearing, um, you know, our rain shells, like it was just a drenching rain. So we're just kind of oh, soaked and, um, we get to the top of the ridge and it's blowing something like, uh, 130 K's or something over this ridge. And it's just, I mean, it's impossible 
you like you cannot stand outside of oh. the lee of a rock and and it's just this awful horizontal stinging sleet hitting us and i mean the body temperatures just plummet instantly and oh, so yeah. yeah and so at that point we're looking at each other going oh god what you know it's 20 more minutes to the hut or it's two hours back to the car <laughs> and so we're like let's just push on we'll suffer through the wind because at least it's going to be at our backs the way that you walk to the hut the wind's going to be at our backs, so let's just go the 20 minutes to the hut make some tea warm up change into dry clothes and then we'll decide what to do and so that's what we did. We got to the hut and I mean, the winds are just how, and, and when I say hut, I mean, it's a little bit of a misnomer because this is more <laughs> like a bunk house. So that the, the hut has 28 bunks, uh, a separate oh, wow. kitchen and yeah, separate kitchen and dining area, private quarters for the hut warden, but it was off season. So there was no hut warden or anything like that. And so it was just the two of us there. But I mean, you can imagine this hut, it's probably uh, something like, uh, around 1800 square feet. So, I mean, it's the size of a house or maybe 1500 square feet, like a, a nice little house size and the entire thing, which is, you know, it's, it's anchored to the rock on this mountain. The entire 28 bunk hut is just shaking and you can hear all the, the utensils hanging up in the kitchen are rattling against the walls and the windows are rattling in their frames and, Things are blowing over outside. I mean, it's a struggle just to get the door open. And so we got inside, we shaded all our, our shed all our, our wet clothes and changed into dry stuff and made tea and made lunch. And I'm going, this is a, this is a bad situation that we're in. This wind is, uh, it's kind of uh, overwhelming and I'm not sure that we should stay up here. I think we should try to get back down, get back to the car, even though that's going to suck. We all should right. do that so that we can be back at a warm place tonight. And uh, my friend Jessica just looked at me and she said, I just cannot go back out into that wind. There's no way. And uh, so we, that luckily there's a radio in the hut and we called down uh, to the um, Department of Conservation Visitor Center and said, uh, hey, we're up at this Mueller hut and you know we thought there was supposed to be a break in the weather, but it doesn't really seem like that's materializing. Can you guys advise what's going on? And they said, oh, yeah, it's still coming. It's just a little bit later than it anticipated. But it looks like now it's going to be about a 12-hour window. And so um, if you are equipped to stay the night up there, that's what we'd recommend you should do. And we said, well, we brought, you know, we brought all our sleeping bags and stuff to, to spend the night. So we'll, we'll stay the night and, you know, the weather's supposed to break and we can come back down in the morning. Great. Perfect. Sounds like a good plan. So, you know, we were pretty happy at that because we could just sit there in the hut and make tea and you no, know, the hut's not heated. So at the temperature is right around, I think it was like 28 degrees in the hut. Right. Uh, so it's below freezing, but at least you're out of the wind. And so, you know, we're, we're happy. We're making tea, we're eating, it's fine. And then that night, sure enough, right around seven o'clock, the clouds started opening up and uh, the wind started dying down a little bit. And I, I mean, I was like, yes, the the break is here. I'm going to go out. I'm going to take photos. And I was, yeah, it was, I was having a ball going out doing night photography, star trails over Mount cook. And then we went back inside and, uh, cooked dinner went to sleep thinking, all right, cool. Next morning we're out of here. Well, the whole night, neither of us really got any sleep because the wind just kept picking up and picking up and picking up. 
And the entire hut, like I said, is just quivering and shaking the entire night. And uh, so finally, next thing or first thing the next morning, I jumped out of bed and I was going to go out and shoot the sunrise. And it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful morning. There's kind of patchy, patchy clouds in the sky. Sunrise comes up. It's this wonderful combo of gold and kind of this weird deep purple and uh, just beautiful. But what had happened was overnight, the intense winds had compacted all of this wet slushy snow into uh, an ice layer and the freezing. And you didn't have any. Yeah, because. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And also because the clouds started breaking up, the freezing level dropped a lot. It dropped like 500 meters lower than they thought. Yeah. So the freezing level dropped below the hut and the winds compact. So you had this wind slab that was like as dense as concrete. And it was honestly <laughs> the most slippery thing I've ever stood on in my life. Oh, Maybe, shit. you know, with the exception of an ice rink, it was just like an ice rink. And so, I went outside to photograph the sunrise and I was literally being blown across the ice by the wind. And it was lucky I just had some metal spikes on my tripod. I could dig those in. (laughs) And if it wasn't for that, man, I was going to get basically, so I got blown across this flat stretch until I fetched up on some rocks right above this ridge that, you know, would just be a, you'd be on a 35 or 40 degree incline on ice. And so I kind of used the tripod to scramble back to the the hut and get inside. And uh, I went in and I went, Jessica, we have a, we have a problem. <laughs> like we, we can't get down right now that all, everything is ice. It's just pure ice. Get, get your sled and, out. Um, what's that? Get it, get, just Y'all get your sled out. Build yeah. Sled. Yeah. And so, oh my God. So I was like, all right. Here's what we got to do. Um, you know, so I'm an engineer by education. And I always do like like this problem solving type of stuff. So I had my pocket knife and we went around and we pulled a bunch of screws out of the walls oh, of the hut because it's a wood fabrication hut. So we pulled all the screws out and then we went to our backpacks and we cut off every extra strap that we didn't need off of our backpacks and drove the screws through the straps and then tied the straps around our shoes oh, so to smart, make these... Dude kind of improvised crampons and they worked surprisingly well um up until you got to a, an incline of maybe oh. say 10 15 degrees yeah and so we're going along we're headed back down and we get to this one point and even though you're following the ridge line you're not on top of the ridge line you're kind of you know sidling the ridge line so your path in front of you, yeah, it's more or less flat, but you're walking on about a 30 degree slope. And so, I mean, we're just, we had this, we got to this one chute that we had to cross and I was like, okay, it looks like if we kind of go down the rocks of one side of this chute, we can traverse and then scramble up the rocks on the other side. So I'm going to go first and I use my uh, tripod to glissade yeah. down to the the bottom of this little chute. Yeah, and if uh, and for, uh, for for those of you that don't know what glissading is, it's basically where you get on your get on your butt and you basically slide down the snow on your butt with your feet forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So doing this uh, just barely controlled slide, and then um, 
And then Jessica came down. She was using my trekking poles to help her glissade. Um, but it was really hard because this ice, man, it was so dense. So it's hard to get any penetration with the tips of the poles. And so she came down pretty fast and almost knocked me off the rock that I was on. And so, the, but we, we both got settled and then I, and then I, we kind of started to get standing upright. And in that process, the water bottle in the side of my pack squirreled free and it bounced off one of these rocks and hit the ice and it was gone. Like it was just yeah. instantly hundreds of meters down the ice. And this particular slope, man, if you went down the ice, it was, you would, you would slide uncontrollably probably for six or 700 feet. And then you would fall off of a cliff yeah, onto dude, a glacier. Say you're pretty lucky you got out of that unscathed. So, so we looked at each other at that point and, um, even though neither of us wanted to say it in the moment, we we're both just about like, that was the, that was the moment of realization where we went, okay, this is not just goofing around anymore. This is incredibly dangerous and potentially life-threatening. Well, that's all for episode 28. Uh, tune into uh, episode 29 where Josh finishes his story and we touch on a few more topics. Thanks for listening.